0: Welcome to Herd at Heritage. Herd at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Can Market Bridges Speed to New Naval Capabilities. Please welcome our host, Brent Sadler, Senior Fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology and Heritage Center for National Defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Good morning and welcome, everyone. Glad to have you join us for this conversation today with Dr. William Roper. We'll be talking on a new concept, and idea, that might be helpful and have utility to get new capabilities quickly to the fleet and also bring new entrants into the defense sector, two things that are very vitally needed in this great power competition with China and Russia today. But first, before I go further, I'd like to give a little background on our guest today. Dr. William Roper is currently the CEO of Alansi Corporation. Before that, he was the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. And before that and where we actually first crossed paths in 2012, he was the Director of Strategic Capabilities Office, a very interesting and unique office, which we'll save and probably get to later. But without further ado, over to you, Dr. Roper.
0: Thanks, Brent, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation and to everyone that's joining us today. You didn't have to twist my arm to get me to come talk about new models that we can use to compete and win, especially against China, which is our our biggest pacing threat. And if there's one takeaway I want to leave with you today, and I hope you'll be very provocative in your response and questioning this today, is that the idea of being in a military competition with China, even inside of the military and its industrial complex, is too myopic to be able to win. The real thing we have to do is be in a military competition for the industrial base. And that pivot in mindset has given me a lot of focus and clarity about a new model that we could adopt in the US where the military could play a different role uh, that it played during the Cold War, but one that still feels kind of analogous. And I hope to share thoughts with you this morning about how that might be, some examples of why it might succeed, and then to get your questions. But if you step back uh, and you think about the last few decades of defense, we've really begun military thinking around the threats and solutions to them. We didn't question whether or not we would have a world-leading industrial base, because we did. And the reason that we did really goes back to the Cold War, where the U.S. made the right technology investments for future military systems when technology was driven mostly by governments. It was so expensive to develop technology during that time, and that seems so different than today, where two people with a laptop can create a billion-dollar company. Technology was expensive. Computers were still expensive. They were still novel. They weren't miniaturized. Uh, uh, storage and memory was not small. It was just a different era. The US made the right investments. And you can see those technologies, things that you're very familiar with, like, like satellites, like uh, high bandwidth antennas, like the internet itself and a DARPA program. And microelectronics, those investments that were needed to beat the Soviet Union, kept going after the Cold War ended. They got cheaper, and they led to the next Industrial Revolution, the information Industrial Revolution, that happened in the US on our terms in a way that arguably benefited the entire world, all of the allies and partners who work with us. So we gained a historic era in the US where we were unchallengeable militarily. We could literally pick up the phone and call adversaries and say, we're coming. There's nothing they can do about it. Because we used military investment in the Cold War to win the Cold War, but more importantly, to win the race to the next industrial revolution. Well, now we have an adversary back in China. And We're waking back up and we're thinking, okay, we've got to compete against them. And if you're in the Pentagon or in the military, or if you are someone that thinks about military competition, it's very easy to jump into the mindset of let's look at the threats and then let's look at the technologies that we can use to beat those threats. But if we do that, I I predict we'll lose. And I'll, I'll explain why. Look at what's happened since the end of the Cold War to now between companies that are defense companies and companies that are commercial companies, we've, we've literally had our industrial base divide in this nation between the dot mill market and the dot com market. And that's a dangerous place to stay, because left alone with only military funding, the military industrial base has continued to consolidate into larger and larger companies that have to do more generalized, broad offerings across all the services because our current military programs are too few and far between. They're generational. So you have to be able to build a little bit of everything. When you have to be able to build a little bit of everything, it leads to inefficiency, it leads to bureaucracy, and it leads to a lack of agility. And so our military industrial base has continued to collapse. Meanwhile, new companies have grown up in in this nation, making amazing technology, but without a relationship with the military to begin with. Benefit we had after World War II, where almost everyone in business served in the military, that benefit's over. And we now have companies growing up that don't know that working with the military can be some of the most satisfying work we can do. So what we need now is we we need to wake up and say, hey, it's not the Cold War anymore. 80% of the nation's R&D is not in the military. 80% of our nation's R&D is commercial. And we need a new model to have that R&D not just help us solve military problems, but to create the next industrial revolution, so the same thing that has happened over the last generation happens again. And so when Brent and I first started talking about this, I said the solution became obvious to me when I was, when I was in the Air Force. I was looking at one particular market, and that was electric aviation. These vertical takeoff and landing, flying cars, you know, flying taxis, And watching our civilian uh, FAA partners have have a challenge in certifying them, because there hadn't been electric airplanes before. And I thought, because you're a little more forward-leaning in an Air Force, that we would be able to certify these first-of-their-kind aircraft. And we did that. We got $25 million from Congress. And companies like Joby and Beta have gained military flight releases and generated the first revenue in the market. Well, since then, the validation of the military that these vehicles were safe has led to massively increased investment in this new commercial tech market. These companies are now going public with high valuations. And now there's a market, a new market, that's here that's not military, but it's commercial. And it's a dual-use market. It's not .com or .mil, it's .tech. We have access to it for commercial advantage, for economic advantage, and for military advantage. I look at that model, where the government preempts and induces the market, and I contrast it to what happened when hobbyist drones emerged. That technology also emerged first in the US, but it didn't have a strong connection to the government. There wasn't government leadership to stabilize it in the US. And now that entire supply chain has moved overseas, And the designs that we created are now DJI. That's a cautionary tale for what happens if we don't go compete for the industrial base. It's not enough to build a war-winning military anymore. We have to build a war-winning military in a way that builds a war-winning industrial base for the future. That's the big idea that I had in the Air Force. And I'm doing everything in my power now that I'm outside of it to try to catalyze these markets and provide ideas that could help us maintain this advantage into the future.
2: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Roper. So for those of you in the audience, we're going to be shifting over into questions and answers uh, from you. Uh, but we have a, if, before we get started, we have a polling question. There'll be a couple of these that'll be posed to you to get a sense of where you are as we go through this discussion. So if we can, go ahead and call up the first polling question. We'll give about 30 seconds for you to answer. While we think about questions that we'll pose to Dr. Roper here shortly.
1: So, 100% of, or no, (laughs) results are coming in. It looks like the majority of our respondents have responded, uh, the last one, all of the above. Uh, And second after that is Department of Defense processes hinder,
2: Sorry. Well, I think that kind of gets to your point, the, and many times the, our own processes and our own institutions in DOD, Department of Defense, tend to hold us back from actually making the type of changes that we need to. Yeah. But in your estimation, based on your experience both at Air Force, now in industry, what are the most promising sectors for this dual use kind of market bridge or regulatory bubble that we could actually really take advantage of in the next couple of years? There are a lot. Um,
0: and it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and I was I was bemused looking at the polling <laughs> question um, because I, I think it was referencing where are the hurdles. The hurdles everywhere. Everything is a hurdle. The process is currently 180 mm-hmm. from what we need to do this bridging market strategy because our process works on requirements and bridging strategies work on opportunities. There's no process in the Navy, in the Air Force, and the Army. To take advantage of opportunities. In fact, every hurdle you have to cross, from requirements to acquisition to budgeting, is, is antithetical to that paradigm. The whole system needs to be changed. And I think there are members of Congress that appear willing to do radical change, which I'm super supportive of and will help on any time. In terms of like what we should focus on, I think you gotta get you gotta get specific. Like you know, I always had theories, but I if you watched me in the Air Force or at SCO, we got really specific at putting them in practice. That thing we did with the Agility Prime program, you know, it, it was walking cr- around cra- crazy talk. when I was talking to Air Force general officers about flying cars, and like we don't have a requirement for those. And I was like, but this is going to be a big industry, and we don't want it to be a Chinese industry, and we can make it be a U.S. industry. So uh, that insight, the fact that that has now, appears to be actually happening, has given me a lot of confidence that there is a strategy where the U.S. could win. So I look at now running a a drone logistics company, drone logistics and sensing and medical company. I see the same opportunity. I see a new market. It appears it's going to be very big. It's much bigger than delivering Uber Eats to your home. It's going to move critical supplies to people who need them and effectively make getting items the equivalent of like downloading. You get them fast, right? even faster than you do today. That seems to be a pretty powerful idea that could have a huge economic advantage if it happens in the US. What are the hurdles? Well, drones are only in the military, and, and a lot, not, not a lot of people know, Brent, that we don't have autonomous things in the military. We have remotely piloted things. And there's a very big difference between remotely piloted versus fully autonomous. So I see we've got a new kind of capability, full autonomy, that will be instantiated on what are historically military platforms. That seems like another big regulatory challenge. Mm. So where could the Navy be a leader in the world as saying, we're gonna gonna find a way to certify these systems. We're gonna set the safety standards. We're gonna get a way to regulate these within the Navy. I predict if the Navy did that, that civilian regulators would say, thank you, I don't have to figure it out. I'm gonna do exactly what the Navy did, and the market would happen. So, I doubt the Navy has a requirement for drone delivery to ships, but if they decided to have one, or, or, or better yet, to be opportunistic and catalyze the market, I think the same thing that we're seeing with electric aviation would happen, would happen again for, for drone logistics. And what's the benefit? Even if you don't want to go do it at a massive scale now for military operations, you have access to a new industrial base. And in the meanwhile, the US gets the economic advantage, the benefit of having that technology, that job, those jobs be, be domestic. So it's a win-win. But it really takes the, would take the Navy out of being a pure purchaser and would turn it into more of a partner, less a procurer, more of a catalyst. Yes. That will take some of the most strategic thinking in the government because you'll have to understand these market trends. You'll have to be able to understand the business cases that come from them, the economic cases that come from them, and decide where best to put money. But without this investment mentality, we will lose because look what happens when we just procure. We shrink the industrial base and create generational
2: programs. That's a losing strategy. Uh, as a submariner, pre- uh, former submariner, uh, there was an interesting uh, exercise that was done. And I think I'm not sure how formally it was done, but they t- used a drone to deliver mail to a submarine, surface submarine. And having been one, avoiding having to wait for the tug or having to go into a port or where there's a lot of heavy traffic, there's a lot of potential there, obviously for getting parts and as well as getting the mail to the sailors without bringing the ship all the way into port.
0: We did some deliveries between yeah. Navy and Coast Guard ships, mm-hmm. and. What we were told is most of the things delivered out of cycle are less than 10 pounds. Mm. So they're, they're time critical. They're, they're medicine. They're parts. They need to go now. Yes. So it's just an, it's an example. Like you, can get, you can get hung up and say, let's talk about drone logistics forever. But there are other areas. Anything involving autonomy, mm-hmm. anything involving space is a huge case for this kind of catalyzing bridging market strategy. So if you think historically, the military has always been the first adopter of deep tech. Mm. Well, over time, Silicon Valley, which was built on deep tech ideas, has become increasingly more and more focused on de-risk software technology. Only about 20% of Silicon Valley's R&D is in deep tech. If the military comes in and acts as a partner with deep tech, which is arguably what it ought to be doing, because software is fast and it seems to work pretty well commercially, we're not going to be able to make a big difference there with our dollars. But if we if we think of ourselves as a market and not just a purchaser, so market means that we have money, uh, we have we have users, we have a like a business case to be made. But most importantly, for a lot of deep tech areas, we have regulatory control. Yes. So we can de-risk them before they commercialize. Huge potential for having the Navy skate ahead of these pucks, mm-hmm. knowing that these pucks are going to be moving around on on U.S. ice, right? As opposed to moving into someone else's goal. And if we don't, I just I just see the inevitable that our industrial base for the military will become increasingly separated from all of these new areas like, like space and AI and quantum that are increasingly mostly commercial. Oh, yes. I
2: think now we'll go to one of the questions from the audience, Maya.
1: Yes, we have a question from the audience. Uh, should SCO, the Strategic Capacity Office, change its focus from cross-service use to dual use of commercial
0: technologies? You know, I I've, I've loved doing the, the, the SCO office. That was a great, I mean, that got me plugged into the China fight. I had, mm-hmm. I had that task before I think anyone else in the Pentagon did, and what an overwhelming task when you're still doing uh, violent extremism. It was very clear to me in starting that office that we needed immediate solutions today. So that's why we started repurposing what the Navy had. And I'll tell you, you, know, God bless the US Navy, it was the main sponsor of the stuff that I did. Like Admiral Greenard and um, Admiral Richardson really glommed onto this. Because so much of what the Navy had, like the standard missile six weapon that was defensive, was easy to make into an offensive weapon. And we took ships and we made them un- uncrewed. And we took uh, undersea vehicles and we tried to make them real for the Navy. But it was all about providing immediate solutions that were asymmetric in the way they were applied. So let's not fight the way we fought. Let's fight a different way. And after five years of doing that, we, we were still coming up with ways of repurposing. And I think that ought to always be done. Keep innovating with what you have. Because if you can find a way to make it disruptive and deterring again, it saves you money for something that's really leap ahead. So we should always be innovating with what we have. MacGyver style, right? you know, you gotta, you got to fix it with what you have. But it's equally important to think about the industrial base and, and the next leap ahead set of technologies that are, that are going to be probably commercial in nature. And that was dawning on me as I was leaving the SCOs, doing programs like Project Maven, which we know how that went, but trying to bring commercial machine learning into the Pentagon. Uh, but But when I went to the Air Force, I kept that thread going. and said, let's bring in commercial software. Let's bring in artificial intelligence. Let's work with Silicon Valley and other tech hubs and co-invest our dollars. Mm -hmm. And after Mm -hmm. just three years of doing that, we were seeing a fourfold return on our investment. So you put a dollar in, you get $5 worth of purchasing power. Why? When investors see that military dollar, they see product market fit in a different market that has different rules that gives an advantage. So we want to co-invest. Imagine if we took the Pentagon's budget and we co-invested it in myriad areas with private investors. How dominant could we be? Let's go back to China. Yeah, China's got a huge advantage, huge advantage in their centralized strategy. But, but the disadvantage is that when you're centralized, you don't get the stability that markets provide. So if we could find a way to create synergy between our whole of nation markets.gov.com, I think markets have shown they can be proven as innovative over time, and I would bet on that strategy. But the U.S. right now is far from that, and I I really worry about the future. I have a young daughter now. I worry about the future that she is growing up into, and that's what motivates me every day. So I'm still working like 14-hour days after leaving government. Is that? Yes, I care about doing a good job. I care more about creating a better future. And I I see for the first time in my head the path to losing is becoming more and more real. We've got to change the direction we're going. And the US government has to lead this change. And the military will be the lead of that lead. And it's not playing
2: that role right now. Terrific. I think we're getting close to the halfway point. But we'll take one more question. We've got another poll. But let's go to the audience if, if there's another question.
1: Is there a particular military service that's uh, most apt or most inclined to use the type of research and development model you describe working with the private sector?
0: It's a, it's a good question. I think, I think every service can do this. There'll be specialties right, with, within each service. A lot of the personal um, technology, personally empowering technology, would seem to work well for, for soldiers and Marines. Air Force, you know, drones, satellites. I, I think the, the, there's a cross-set because the Navy has a drone mission, the Navy's got uh, reliance on satellites. But the Navy could have a huge impact on autonomy because unlike self-driving vehicles, peers like, like self-driving ships and undersea things, that that's a simple enough problem to be solved. Are there economic? Uh, benefits from that. I think, you know, a, a startup that has been working with the Navy for a while, SailDrone, that we worked with uh, when we were in SCO, just did their Series C. So are there commercial uses for autonomous ships? Yes, but they're hard to make and they, they really need military leadership and sustained funding to create that bridging market. And once military adoption and military use and military norms have been demonstrated, commercial just folds around it. So the Navy can have a huge impact. And if if I were king for a day and able to make the Navy strategy on this, I would set a a few targeted investments every budget cycle trying to catalyze markets, fighting for the industrial base.
2: Terrific. I think we'll go to, we have another polling question. We'll go to that. It's in two parts. So we can go and call up the next polling question. Give a few seconds for that, and we'll shift to the second part. I think that was it for the polls. Is that correct? Oh, there we go. So I give a few seconds for the audience to kind of respond to those two. And it's really kind of questions looking at, is this the right thing to do? And we'll kind of get a sense for where the audience. I have a feeling I know which direction they'll go. But as they're thinking about it, I, there's a, we are in the fourth Industrial Revolution right now. Many people have kind of made that assessment, um, but we're starting to see potentially the beginnings of a fifth industrial revolution, more in bioengineering. Uh, is there a room? We've talked a lot about things, machines. Is there room for a market bridge in that? Because that's a different type and different nature of regulatory uh, control.
0: Absolutely. If you if you're taking this seeding the next industrial base which really requires you to win these mm. industrial revolutions, then the fight starts right now for the fourth industrial revolution. And I think that term's becoming pretty broadly accepted. I use it. It's the convergence of agile software, digital engineering, and advanced manufacturing, and just shortening R&D cycles and allowing systems to be made in smaller lots, but without the penalties that have led to mass production in the past. So mass production is going to be dead, and you're going to be able to keep improving things for for myriad systems. And it's a big problem uh, in commercial industry. And I, probably more than any topic, get asked by companies to help them on Fourth Industrial Revolution transformation. Nice. When I was in the Air Force, I was a huge proponent of this. I wrote a lot about it. or Matrix science fiction <laughs> inspired yes. documents like there is in this because I wanted people to actually read it and, and, and realize this is new. This is not model-based system engineering, which typically was the response I got from the Navy, I will say. Mm. We've been doing MBSC since the 90s. Yes, everyone has. But this is different. The models are not models. They're virtualizations. Digital uh, de-risking, digital design, digital concurrency uh, based completely different rules Mm -hmm. than their physical counterparts. And I watched first with T7. And then I watched with the B-52 re-engine, which was just awarded by the Air Force. And and I think probably most provocatively, on the next generation air dominance platform, we applied this technology with, magical results. And what I realized was this is an example of exactly this, this bridging strategy because this technology, this fourth industrial ecosystem was created let's say mostly by the automotive industry and I think I think truly made exceptional in Formula 1 as a very close uh, military exemplar. But it was it was made there, it was just crossing into aviation but in military systems first. Mm-hmm. So T-7 is arguably the first example of a truly digital airplane. Well, if the military rallied around and and said we're building every system this way, if the U.S. government said we're going to give incentives to help companies do their their fourth industrial revolution transformation, lower the CapEx burden, then we would have ourselves revitalizing using the military as, as as a catalyzing event for many of our larger companies. It's a great strategy. Replay that for the fifth industrial revolution. So it's that mindset of like if if all we care about is what we build, we'll keep getting the collapse of the industrial base, right? It's like it's like crop rotation. If you keep doing the same thing, planting the same thing year after year, you erode the nutrition of the soil and eventually you can't plant anything. That's what we're doing to the defense industrial base. If you worry about enriching the soil, and this is an idea of enriching, we're going to try to put, we're going to try to sow into the soil itself to to fertilize it so that it remains fertile, if we take that mindset, then we will care equally about building things better, not just building better things. It's a big distinction because there's no requirement Mm -hmm. for building things better. The requirement is for the better thing. So the whole system needs to change 90 degrees to think about competing along these industrial lines. if you're the US Navy, what becomes your imperative? We need to build a digital ship. We need to build a fourth industrial revolution ship today because if we don't, someone else will. And if there's a military advantage to be had, they'll have it. There's a commercial advantage to be had, but likely seed that industry by, by using their military to pursue it first where you can you can avoid, you can tolerate higher prices. The, the consequences are dire. And then as we move into the fifth industrial revolution, they become scary. Right, it, you, We move into areas where we simply don't have a lot of expertise in the military. Bi- biology is, I think, the most limiting area of expertise that we have. Yes. I think we even have a little more AI expertise. We have very little of that than we have bio. And the things that are happening in synthetic biology and gene editing are just plain scary. It's like tre- cheating on Mother Nature's test. We haven't earned a right to this technology, but we can hack it mm-hmm. and use it. Seems super scary to me and an area that I wish there was more investment and focus and one i am confident that if we don't have close commercial partnerships if we're not seeding those synthetic biology gene editing companies in the u.s and stabilizing them here that may be the biggest security
2: risk of all Oh yes so i'd be remiss if i didn't come back and talk briefly there looks like there's a market opportunity for this dual use autonomous sea vessels in the logistics because the nation right now it's been in the news empty shelves uh, ship ba- shipping backlogs, logistic backlogs. There's probably some utility there that the market is starting to get a demand for. But let's go back and see what the results were from that, the second two uh, polling questions, Maya. At
1: the first poll, 100% of respondents said that it is appropriate for uh, DoD to use market bridge. Uh, the second question in the poll: 68% of respondents said that a most effective near-term use of a market bridge would be test ranges for new platforms and weapons. 16% said bioengineering applications and 16 access to fleet experiments and Navy exercises.
2: Yeah.
0: Interesting. Oh, yeah, it, aside from testing, you need the regulatory side. Mm. It's getting to being certified. Because testing alone keeps you in the R&D eddy. Yeah. Never get out of it. You demonstrate it's possible but you haven't demonstrated that it can be made operational. Yes. So the key is that a lot of great ideas, a lot of great companies and startups get stuck in the R&D eddy, and you don't get out of it. There's no recurring revenue in it. They're just one-time deals. You prove something, everyone gets happy about it, and then nothing else happens. Look, we did a delivery between uh, a Navy and a Coast Guard vessel. It was great. Mm-hmm. We thought it was super successful, but nothing happened after it. Yes. So the key is having a plan to get to certification and some level of recurring revenue. And in the case of the Agility Prime electric flying car program, it's only 25 million, right? That's not a lot to seed an entire industry. We we have the we have the funding to do this. Mm-hmm. It just requires the the strategic mindset and cutting back against that bureaucracy. That will say the first thing they will say is we don't have a
2: requirement for that. I would probably go a little further and say there's needs for some creative imagination and new thinking. Maya, do we have any other questions from the audience? We'll take one more and I think we'll start to get to wrap up.
1: Yes. So a few members of the audience have asked about currently existing programs. Um, One questioner cited the SBIR program. Um, Another brought up uh, organizations serving as innovation hubs and bridges like AFWorks, NSIN, and NavalX. Uh, they ask, are there too many of these organizations or too few? How should we think about how they all fit in the larger enterprise?
0: It's a very good question. I'm asked about that a lot. Um, so I was very intentional in helping the Air Force create AFWorks when I was in SCO. And then you got to be careful what you help create, because you may end up owning it. So I ended up owning it in the Air Force. Very intentional because I saw a flaw in how we were engaging Silicon Valley. We, we were energized, we were there. We even had a little bit of money that we were putting into programs, but none of our contracts represented a product market fit because the organizations that were putting them on contract did not represent a market. They were not a purchaser a procurer or operator. That's where the recurring revenue is. That's what gets private investors exciting. So it, it, was, it was equivalent to the R&D Eddy, right? And I was so afraid we would lose a window of opportunity to work with private investors, and uh, their arms are open. I think the China's handling of Hong Kong really did us a favor in making startups and investors think that doesn't comport with their values, and they want to work with us. So we came in in the Air Force at exactly the right time. The model we have in work, I am confident is the right model, but there's a lot that Congress could do to make it easier to implement. Every, so I've discovered SBIR, right? Almost 900 million total dollars between SBIR and STTR. That's a huge amount of investment, but it was all going into the R&D eddy. So what we did is we allowed AFWorks to control the entire pot, which is not equivalent for any other organizations. So they have real dollars, real dollars to put on contract, but they can't just go do what they want they have to induce Air Force program office investment. So if an Air Force program office puts a dollar on the table, we can match it with SBIR and then match it again with private investments. That's how we got to the four to one matching. That's why program offices wanted to participate. You put $10 million in, if you get like $50 million of purchasing power out, that's a great deal. And we structured the investment strategy. And this this is putting them on contract. We didn't take equity, but we, we, we set investment because we wanted to think that way. We set a, a structure where you started with a lot of small bets and then fewer mediums, and then you took a few big bets per year. And one of the companies on whose board I serve is Hermes. They're building a hypersonic aircraft for the Air Force. They got a $60 million contract, and it was a match of PEO, program executive office dollars, matched one-to-one with... SBIR matched again, completely matched with private dollars. $60 million to get a hypersonic plane built is fantastic. That's the kind of thing that can be done if we use our dollars well. But if private investors don't see the product market fit, they don't see the program office or the warfighter, it's just another R&D contract. It's another cul-de-sac that looks great when you first turn down it, but eventually hit the dead end and turn around. Terrific. So
2: before we go to closing comments, and I'll give you a chance to, to hit anything that you think we should have but we didn't so far, we'll go back to that first polling question that we asked at the very beginning and just see how you, the audience, have changed your position or if you're still in the same mindset. And I'll give you a few seconds for that and for Dr. Roper to kind of think about anything that we, we should have addressed or should have raised and questions we, we may not have raised that you would like to address as well. So We'll give this a, just a few more moments to ask that initial question. won't to wait too long. Does it look like there's any change or are we still on this where we were initially?
1: We still have some responses coming in, so okay. give it a second. All right. It looks like the uh, about half of our respondents, a little more have said all of the above. Uh, second after that, uh, Department of Defense processes hinder the most. And third, regulations are not conducive to cutting edge capabilities.
2: It sounds like there's a larger body of people that are saying all of the above based on the earlier. So it yeah. kind of confirms what we would have expected. <laughs> but over to you, Dr. Oper, for your final closing thoughts before we wrap up today.
0: Thanks, Bryn. It is all of the above. Uh, the system needs to be, be rewritten. That doesn't mean it's bad. I hate when people say it's broken. It's just a thing of an older world. Won the Cold War. So we should be very thankful for that. And remind ourselves that it's, it's not brokenness, it's just antiquated. And when something becomes antiquated, it's time to do the new thing. It's not fix the old hurdles, it's to just create a new racetrack. So, you know, I, this is such a fascinating topic, and I really appreciate Heritage doing this talk. I think it's really important. To try to get people to pivot to the industrial base, the most important thing, though, is, is to begin putting it in practice. So I, I did that when I was in the Air Force trying to seed a new industry here in the U.S., and I think that's appears to be happening, which makes me really happy. Since I've left the government, I thought that since electric uh, passenger vehicles uh, seem to commercialize very easily, that that electric drones doing delivery would, would be something that could be a close follow That's why I, I thought it would be a good idea to put my, my time into Volanzi. You know, I, there are a lot of opportunities, in being a CEO of a company, it takes a lot of time. You're running around all the time. But the reason I do it is I see the potential for the same thing. But the potential for doing it goes up exponentially if the military is leading, especially on the testing and regulation side. And I think if we can get a couple of examples of seeding these markets where the Air Force has done one, the Navy has done one, the Army has done one, that eventually we'll realize this is a really good approach. And I expect that eventually uh, each service will have a chief investment officer. And they'll do exactly this job, just like the director of AFWORKS was the chief investment officer for me. They'll be some of the most important jobs that exist in the Pentagon. you know, if I, ever, uh, if I ever had a chance to come back in and serve again, I would do everything in my power to make this model real on the inside of the government. Since I'm not on the inside, I'm doing everything in my power to make it real on the outside. Because I go back to what I said. I, I feel like we will lose on the current set of tracks we're on, not because our military will necessarily be less dominant. I'm afraid we will have a dominant military that is unused because we erode on our industrial base side. To the point that we can't build a dominant military in future. So I'm going to do everything in my power to get off the set of train tracks we're on and on to a different one. And I just appreciate the leading thinking that you and Heritage put in, especially supporting the Navy. And as I said, I wouldn't have made it to my Air Force job or anywhere if the Navy hadn't given me a shot on that standard missile six defense to offense program. So the Navy did, and then I built build up a great relationship. And I really think without that, that partnership, uh, it wouldn't have happened. Well, if the Navy could get its head around things built for one purpose, can do something else, and eventually let me do that at scale for them, I think it could also get its head around. We can take a technology that's being built for some commercial purpose and seed it into mm-hmm. the military space. It's not repurposing the military, it's actually repurposing the industrial base that's commercial. Simple idea, but as the question uh, implied, we have to change
2: everything to do it well. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate your insights and your time with us today. And for you, the audience, uh, thank you for your questions and your uh, interaction on the polling questions. Uh, just for information, this event will be posted later in a couple days, so you can always come back to it and reference it as well, as I'm sure we'll continue this dialogue in the near future, and hopefully we'll see some market bridges put in place in DOD, in uh, using your words, a partnership with industry. With that, uh, thank you very much.
0: stuff, but when this one thing, you know, I, I was like, I was so close to the agility. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I am trying still, i still
2: So, the other interesting from the shipping, the commercial shipping business, one of the things that's really killed off our industry, Adam said, is the fact that we, it's an unfair playing field for oh. one, and we're not competitive.